In some ways, uh, this I've been waiting to preach this sermon for about six months. I am, and it will probably come across, deeply burdened. And I am going to plea uh, to you and with you today uh, that we consider the words of the scriptures and our context. Because there's a few things that I'm trying to do every time I stand up here. I'm trying to exegete the scripture first and foremost, trying to figure out what it means, uh, how to understand it, how to apply it. But then I'm trying to exegete you guys. Where are you at? What do you need? How does this apply to your life? But thirdly, I'm trying to exegete the, the, the context around our church. What does the world need? What does this mean to them and how does this apply? And I think this text today, this sermon today really applies to all three of those things. And so um, if you're new with us, we are in the middle of a generosity initiative, a series of messages also called Greater Things. And it's really based on this passage from John chapter 14, verse 12, where Jesus tells his disciples this radical thing before he goes to be with his father in heaven, before he ascends to heaven, before uh, he goes to the cross. He says, greater things than these you will do because I am going to the father. And so as I started to think about that, I started to ask myself this question. How many of us really understand and comprehend and apply this to our own lives? How do we see ourselves joining the Father's work and doing greater things than even our older brother Jesus did? And I think most of us have a little bit of mystery around that. We, we kind of hit at the edges of it. And for our church, um, we, we've just said that we feel led and called over these next three to five years to go deeper, wider, and further than we have as a church. And today's message is the further piece of that series. And the further piece for us over the next three to five years is really to not only resource the next generation of disciple makers in this church, but to invest relationally in them and to do that in a really strategic way. So this sermon is kind of aimed at, at hitting that today. Um, so uh, my daughter uh, is on the track team. All right, and it's a lot of fun watching Tatum run uh, on the middle school track team at her school. One of the events that she uh, does on the track team is that she runs the relay race, one of the relay races, actually two of them, the four by one and the four by 200. And um, the, the interesting thing about the relay race is, is funny because it, it's different than any other event um, on the uh, uh, kind of the, uh, the on the on the track kind of table of events that they do, because most of the events are based on the individual, but the relay event is based on the team. But not even the team about the t it's about the team functioning in a certain way. Um, and so this little baton actually means more than any person's individual speed. It means more than any person's individual skill. This little baton means more than any, any person's um, uh, resume and their record of how they've run in a race. Because if the baton doesn't cross the finish line, the runners are disqualified. So I want you to think with me for a second here. Our faith is like this baton, and we are called to take this baton and pass it on to the next generation in such a way that we are not disqualified from the race that the Lord has set up before us, which is to make disciple makers. And my plea to you this morning is that I, I feel like, I'm not going to hit anybody with that, I promise. Um, I, feel like, I feel like we could use some work and some effort and some intentionality about thinking through this as a church. Because Jesus has called us and empowered us to pass this baton of the faith um, to our neighbors, 
to some of us, to our children, if you have children, to all of us, maybe to our parents, that's been part of my story, right? To our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our classmates. Because the thing is this, is that if you're in here and you are a follower of Jesus, the baton is in your hand, amen? It's in your hand. And so what we wanna do is we wanna figure out how God is calling us in this season of life, in this season of our church, how to pass that baton well. And so just for fun, um, if you're comfortable with this, I wanna do a quick visible survey, all right? Um, so you don't have to, but I'd love for you to raise your hand when I ask you this question. Um, now, if you don't raise your hand, it could be um, that, um, that maybe it doesn't apply to you or you're not comfortable with it, so don't think too much about it. But if you're in here and you became a follower of Jesus before uh, the age of 22, would you raise your hand? All right, look around. That's probably about 80% of the room, maybe more, all right? So what that means for us is that this is where we ought to focus 80% of our disciple-making attention, amen? It's statistically proven across the board. I would argue probably across the history of the church, not just the history of the church in the United States, is that this is where we are called to invest our time. This is why we are doing this Greater Things Initiative. This is why I am preaching this sermon this morning. Um, right now, as a church, we have 165 young people in our community that would be under the age of about 22 or so. Um, now, here's the crazy thing about this. About 63 of those people have come within the last year. This is so rare and something that I want us to pay attention to because this is, this is a time when people are leaving the church at uh, uh, surprising rates. But our church is seeing this rapid growth, and not just rapid growth, but rap rapid growth with young, younger folks. Some of them are because their parents bring them, which is amazing. Some of them are because their friends are bringing them. And I want us to pay attention to that and intentionally invest into this. Now, the beautiful thing about these younger generations, we could call them Gen Z and Gen A, because the youngest millennial is like 25 now. You know that, right? Isn't that crazy? So we're talking about kind of Gen Z and Gen A from a sociological standpoint. I think the interesting thing is, is that their heart um, is so beautiful because it desires the deep integration of both the gospel of word that prior generations have passed down, but also the gospel of deed, which and oftentimes uh, the prior generations have not passed down as faithfully. And they, uh, you know, specifically our middle school, high school, and early college age students want to address these issues in their faith community, their church. That's what that tells us. They want to discuss these things, these life issues here. And yes, Historically, many people have slipped into an imbalance of deed over word uh, in their pursuit of mercy and justice in the, in the world. But I think the church is primarily to blame, not the world. We haven't given them the model and example of Jesus that they so desperately want. One of both that's strong in word and strong in deed and implementation. We have given, and, and, and if we cannot give them the person of Jesus in action, but only his theology and his morality, 
we run the risk of missing out on this opportunity and dropping the baton as well. And why is this happening? Because in large part, the baton that's been passed down is lopsided. And the next generation, friends, is frankly calling us out on it. A few years ago, one of the board members of, uh, of our church planning network, who was actually a, a researcher at the time for the Barna Group, which is a, probably the most renowned research group uh, for, for the Christian community, uh, noted this about, about the syncretism of worldviews that she was seeing uh, in, in younger generations. And, wh- and what, what I mean by syncretism is this, is that syncretism basically combines several elements of faith across many different belief systems into one, all right? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the way this faith system, this worldview handles this, and I'll take the way that this one handles this, and it kind of combines all of these things uh, into one. So I'll take the one, the, the way that this one handles morality, I'll take the way this one handles identity and freedom, et cetera, et cetera. So let me give you a few statements about how this has happened, and then I think it'll be helpful for us to grab onto. So like one of those, those kind of worldviews could be called postmodernism. Now, postmodernism says this, if your belief hurts someone's feelings, that that belief is wrong. So here's what Christianity says, though. We know that Jesus said his followers would experience hostility in this world. He promised it. He didn't say, he didn't say you might. He said it's coming, all right? It could be a, a, a mixed belief with, with secularism, which says this. A person's life is valuable only when society sees it as valuable. So this is why things like abortion are okay for the secularist thinker, Right? But we know that Jesus says that worth and identity is given, not built and accumulated. Amen? So it could be like a new age spirituality, which says this. All people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use. But we know that there's only one name that's risen from the dead for our salvation. So our knee bows there. It could be with with Marxism. Now, I was tempted to make a comment about race, but I think some of you would tune me out. So I'm going to make a comment about economics instead, uh, which Marxism would say this, that personal accumulation of money and other forms of wealth exemplify how unfair society can be toward those who work hard and do not get ahead. But we know that Jesus and his scriptures talk about greed, envy, and covetousness, which assumes personal property and that we are going to have to wrestle through how we relate to stuff in this world. And it's also the whole reason why generosity is part of how we worship God, because this exists in the world. Now, these are all dominant shaping voices in our world today that are no longer a minority worldview in the United States but they are a majority of what our young people are facing. So how did it get this way is my question. Because you have to discover how it it got that way to discover how to to get back to another way of living, another way of disciple making. And here's the quote from from Brooke Hempel with the Barna Group in 2019. She says this, what stood out to, to us most was how stark the shift was between the boomer and Gen Xer generations. We expected millennials to be most influenced by other worldviews. But the most dramatic increase in support for these ideals occurs with the generations before them. It's no surprise then that the impact we see today in our social fabric is so pervasive given these ideas have taken root for two generations. So what's that mean? It means exactly what Mike prayed about. 
It's on us. These competing worldviews have been influencing and lingering around the church for so long that believers, older believers even, have bought into these these ideas, and that slow drip has turned into a cascade that we're now realizing. So to sum it up, the church for the last two generations has struggled to functionally take every competitive thought captive. Every competing thought against the Christian worldview and way of Jesus captive and to make it obey the teachings of Jesus Christ. We've just let them linger around and think, thought to ourselves, they're not going to have an effect on us or the next generation. Here's what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He says, we destroy arguments. It's not on the screen, sorry. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. Now, here's the deal. Our young people hear this verse, and they say, that sounds offensive, because the postmodern worldview has taught them to believe that, and we've not shown them that the gospel is offensive. And so they hear that, and they think, I don't want to be, uh, you know, I don't want to be belittled or hurt by my friends by making, you know, this statement about who Jesus says and what, he, what he's come to do. And so let me put on my worldview glasses that say my belief hurts someone. Uh, if my beliefs hurt someone, it can't be true. And, and, and I'm not kidding about this. I, 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 think, I think we've passed on a baton that says destroy a person instead of destroy an argument. So what that means is, is that we've taught them that what you do is you destroy the person, you cancel the person, you hurt the person because we so deeply identify with what the person believes that we put them in this box. And what we do is we relegate that person to this distant land over here that can never be touched by the Holy Spirit. And the next generation is calling us out. And that's on us because we haven't done the work to apply the gospel in a deep way by taking every thought captive, even around our dinner tables. Now, I'm not afraid of this world or the God in this world God of this world, little G God, and you shouldn't be either. I'm concerned that we are not preparing our children to engage in the right battle. I'm concerned that we're so afraid of this world that we just hope its ways will fade away. And I'm concerned that we're not willing to, as a capital C global church, willing to do the work of passing on an authentic, battle-born, persecution-expectant way of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, to the next generations of disciple-makers in the church. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that we're so busy being enamored with or annoyed by things that are not eternal that we are missing the proverbial forest for the trees. That we're so tied up in politics, we're so tied up in our economy, we're so tied up in pleasure that we are letting the world disciple the next generation instead of the church. And in general, the consensus for most Christians is this, and I'm sure glad I didn't grow up in these times, It's so hard to be a kid now. And I want to scream every time I hear this. Do you know why? Do you know why I want to scream when I hear this? Because it's not good enough. That's our baton. That belongs to us. When Jesus lives in us, we are not called to live in a state of apathy, but engagement. If we know someone that we love was in a building that was on fire, wouldn't we want to do everything we could to help them? Friends, the building is on fire. Where is the church? 
So my question in this sermon today, I'm not even got into it yet, is this, what would it look like to engage, to be a church that responsibly engages with the next generation of disciple makers? And it seems, you know, it seems impossible to imagine a future of influence in the place of fear right now, but I'm extremely hopeful because I truly believe that this is a church that wants to do the work. And so this morning is a plea to take our responsibility of disciple making in an engaging way seriously. You know what my longing is? My longing is this, is that those under the age of 23 or under in this church, which is about 40% of the church at this time, would grow up and say, there was never a day that I doubted that my faith community, my local church was for me. And here are all the ways that I can remember that they engaged with me in the most challenging time to be alive. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing testimony to the world around us that we care enough to engage? So here's our big idea this morning. We are called to pass on a faith that is sturdy enough to endure the world and winsome enough to transform hearts because we need both the protection of the gospel and we need the mission of the gospel uh, in our lives. So this morning is my attempt to lay out from God's word a balanced future for responsibly making disciple makers. So I think there are two things that we need to keep in mind as we do this. The first one is this. We need to embrace the inevitability of formation and secondly, adopt a battle mindset about formation. So let's dig into that first point here, to embrace an inevitability of formation. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. If you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard this verse. Um, but there's something that I see in this verse that I haven't heard before that I want to mention to you. So let me read it for you as we get in here. Paul says this to this church in in Rome, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, this is the part I haven't heard before, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says this, if you really want to live a life of worship as a, as a follower of Jesus, you've got to present yourself sacrificially to the Lord, which to present yourself sacrificially to the Lord means that you have to present all of yourself to the Lord so that the Lord can shape all of your life, not just the parts you want him to shape. So this is, the, this is kind of like Christianity 101, like lordship salvation, right? He's, he's not just our God, but he's our Lord, which means that he affects every element of our lives, every moment of our day. That's the design that the Lord has for us. When, when, he sent, when, when God the Father sent Jesus for us, he sent him for all of us, not just some of us. So uh, why must we present all of ourselves to the, the Lord as a living sacrifice? Because that's what it takes to be transformed to the image of Jesus. There's no other way to be transformed into the image of Jesus. It's either all or it's nothing. So verse 2 is where I actually want to spend our time. Because I think it dispels this common notion that we have about spiritual formation. Which is that you can live in such a way that you're not being changed. That you're, if you could put it this way, that maybe that you're in neutral. 
spiritually speaking. Uh, when Megan and I first got married, um, I had a stick shift in my truck, a manual transmission to shift through the gears. And how many of y'all need know how to drive a stick shift? A few of y'all? Next gen- this, is, this is next generation. God, I hope you can't even find a stick shift anymore on this. So anyway, that's not your all's fault, guys. Um, so I had this idea. Megan had never driven a sh- stick shift before. I said, I'm going to uh, teach her how to do this. And so, you know, I talked her through the mechanics of it in the driveway, and I said, okay, hop in the driver's seat. Let's go. And so, um, and so you know, in a stick shift, it, let me just break it down for you because some of y'all might not understand this. There are three pedals, not two, in, in the truck, okay? And there's this one on the left uh, that's not the gas or the brake. Um, it is called the clutch, And the clutch, what it does is it basically sends the the transmission kind of into a neutral position where it's not driving the gears so that you can shift into another gear and go to the next degree of acceleration, you know, whether higher or or lower degree there. And so basically the clutch is the kind of the main thing, but there's this tricky kind of balance of the brake and the clutch, right? And it, you know, if you've ever ridden a motorcycle before, it'll really teach you how to do it because you'll pop a wheelie. But anyway, so anyway, I did this awful thing to Megan. I had, I taught her how to drive on the road. And, and we were in Indiana at the time. Indiana is pretty flat. It's basically one big cornfield with a city in the middle. And, um, and so we, we were driving, but I had forgotten about this one little hill that had a stop sign at it. So we're approaching it, and I'm, she's doing pretty good. It's a little jerky, but we're getting through it. And she's, she's getting to the stop sign, and I almost said, just keep going. <laughs> but and I didn't. I said, okay, we got to stop at this. And then that is where the chaos truly began. Because we got the clutch, push the clutch in, now push the brake in. And then she's like, what do I do now? And I'm like, ah, there's a car coming behind us. I'm like, I'm like, uh, I'm like, turn the car off, hit the parking brake. (laughs) Because what what happens, you know, when you're on a hill with a stick shift is is that, uh, you you know, you've got the gravity of being on that hill kind of pushes you, pushes you backwards and you use the brake to go against that. And I think this is exactly what we experience spiritually thinking is that we think that, that the, the, the ground's just level around us. We, th- we think that nothing is moving around us at all. That, that we think that if we're not actively doing something, being transformed by Jesus, that we can just kind of sit still. Paul had no category for that at all. No category whatsoever. Some of y'all are wondering where the story went. I got out of the truck and I drove home. Okay, so that's wrapped up. Let's get back to the Bible. Um, So the Bible calls this conformity to the world. Conformity to the world is the natural uh, drive of every person on the face of the planet. Um, And I think we imagine a spiritual formation with ourselves in the next generation that we can just put into neutral. That there is a way that we can maybe shield the next generation from conformity. Uh, that we, you know, we can just from time to time kind of press the clutch on development, either in our own lives or others, that we're not being shaped. A future where we're not being conformed to the world or being transformed by the image of Jesus. But it's not true. So Paul says, by way of default, we are all being conformed to the patterns of this world, the ways of doing world, the, doing life in this world that are not in line with God's design and plan in Jesus. But he says this, the renewal of our mind through the gospel It has this disrupting effect from that flow that transforms us and sends us in another direction. It's like hitting reverse in the truck really quick, right? So what this tells us is that if we're not actively being renewed in our minds and intentionally being shaped in our hearts and our affections and our lives, 
in the gospel that we are being conformed, and that is an inevitable truth about formation. There is no neutral in your life, your kids' lives, or anybody else's life. Listen to the verse again. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. And listen to how he says we're transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, friends, there is no longer a dominant Christian worldview shaping the next generation by way of default. I think the assumption of this is what made us lazy in the first place. We thought, oh, the school will teach my kids about biblical morality. The law will enforce and instruct my kids on proper ethics. And the church will teach my kids about the destruction of sin and the hope of Jesus. And we just farmed it all out. And that left us with this. And now we see where that assumption has led us. It's led us to kind of a syncretistic next generation of disciple makers. It's kind of this man-made conflicting worldview that kicks against the basic propositional, propositional claims of the gospel, of God's word. And that, that, that's things like this, that God's word is infallible and inerrant. We can trust it, that it's, it, that it's more powerful than any other word on the face of the planet, any other tweet, uh, any, any other news article, any other thing that a friend could tell us, that it rules the day and it rules our hearts. If we don't start there, we'll never, we'll never see that transformation. Which then means that people are inherently bad and capable of absolutely awful things. And so we live our lives in such a way where we say, you know, that doesn't really surprise me. You know, it hurts, but it doesn't really surprise me what's going on in the world tonight, today because you remember what happened with the first two brothers? They killed each other. That should tell us what's, what we're capable of in our sinful state which means that God had to send his perfect son to be murdered for our sins so that it could be possible to find new life and be empowered by the Holy Spirit in that new life in such a way where, because he had to become sin so that we could become righteous. Like that's the only hope because there is, there is, no, there, there is no getting better on our own. The only thing that we can do is kind of move the lines of morality. We can kind of just expand them. We can kind of go beyond or go more narrow than God's word on things. Which means that we have to, as a faith community, talk about our sin often because repentance is not just an individual thing, it's a community endeavor. Which means that we have to expect to extend grace to others that we live with in this world. And when this happens, you know what, you know what it's like? It's like, push, it's like pushing the clutch on the world's formation of us. It's disruptive because that's not the way things go in this world. That's not what conformity to the world looks like. It's a complete and utter transformation. And it disrupts the enemy's plans of conformity because we see that we all deserve to be canceled, yet there is no sin except unbelief that can ultimately cancel our ability to be loved by God and used by God in this world. And so the context that we find ourselves in today is one of disruption as a church, that our faith in Christ is going to be mocked and Jesus and his followers are going to be belittled. And it's because of this, this verse in 1 Corinthians 1.18, God is constantly warning us about this. He says this, for the word of the cross or the gospel is folly, it's foolish, it's fake news to those who are perishing, all right? I'm serious. Why do we need the world to get on board with us to be on mission? 
We don't need the world. We don't need conformity to the world. We need the spirit and the church. He said, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And as awful as this seems, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, warned us to expect this type of disruption in our own hearts and lives and to draw upon his power in the midst of it so that we might, by God's grace, stay engaged in the game of disciple-making with the next generation. Now look at that verse in Romans 12, 2 again. He says this, that by testing you may discern the will of God. This is the part that I've never heard preached on before. Maybe it's just me. What does it look like to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? He says, okay, well, you have to have an environment of testing that out, testing out what you're believing, what is shaping you, what is forming you. I think this is where we drop the ball, not only as a church, capital C church, global church, but as uh, individual families and individuals as well. She says, here's the solution. Here's how Jesus disrupts our conformity to the world and transform it, transforms us. It's that through testing our thoughts and community and holding them up against God's word. So in other words, our community is kind of the battleground to test out how the world's trying to shape us and be transformed by the renewal of our minds, which is in God's word. So my question to you is this. Is your missional community, if you're in one of those, one of our small groups, or your dinner table, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have a family, whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, is your friend group a place to test these competing worldviews? It is, a place, is it a place where you're even welcome to acknowledge and discuss these competing worldviews that are threatening, really, your identity in Christ? Have we created this kind of expectation around the dinner table or on the group chat? Because if we do not expect to have relationships with other believers where we can test out our faith, test out our beliefs, be encouraged, and sometimes rebuked, there's no way we're going to be transformed. And I think that is something to really consider. Who or what is the most dominant force in shaping your worldview today? Barna Research says that most people have a pretty well-formed worldview by the age of 13. That means that the disruption is a little more intense the older that you are, right? If you're coming to faith a little older in life, it's more intense. It's a longer road sometimes. What would it look like for your community and your family to be a place where our worldviews can be confronted, tested, and transformed by the gospel? What would need to happen in your relationships? What's it look like to engage responsibly at this point in your life with that baton that the Lord has put in your hand? Maybe if you're a parent and something outside of God's design happens in a movie you're watching, maybe you stop and you talk about it instead of just fast forwarding or turning it off out of fear or maybe hoping that they didn't see it. Maybe instead of running, you engage and you stay. It's gonna freak your kids out the first couple of times, all right? but you take that thought captive and you make it obey Christ. You take that scene, that image captive and you make it obey Christ. You show what it would look like if Christ was Lord in that moment. Maybe one of your friends is starting to be shaped by the world. Maybe it's an obsession with body image, fitness. Maybe it's 
an excessive love of possessions and you're just seeing them kind of slip away. Or maybe it's a heart of unforgiveness that a work situation is kind of drawn up. And everything in you just wants to secretly hope that it'll disappear. But you hear Romans 12, 2, and you think differently this time. You say, what would it look like to lovingly confront this thing that has captured my friend's heart? What would it look like to take this thought this idea, this lifestyle, captive and make it obey Christ. And you think to yourself, well, man, they might not be my friend anymore. And then we were reminded what Jesus said, right? That's a possibility. It's not a probability, but it's a possibility. You know, that could happen. Is the gospel worth it to you is the question. Is Jesus worth it to you to obey him instead of be taken captive by this world, to be conformed by this world? And so you ask, hey, friend, you decide it's worth it. You say, hey, friend hey, is this, you know, I'm just noticing these things and this is kind of awkward, but is this what God's calling you to do at this season in your life? You know, what are you hoping that, that this kind of pursuit of your life will give you long-term? Have you ever considered what this is doing to your soul? What do the scriptures say? Faithful are the wounds of a what? Friend. Sometimes in community, we have to wound each other. That's what Christian community is actually like, friends. Sounds confrontational, doesn't it? Some of you got really uncomfortable just now. But in Paul's mind, it is the only path to transformation in a hostile world, and the world's always been hostile. So we must responsibly engage the hearts of one another in the next generation. And I think here's the feel of it, okay? And this is where I'm gonna land the plane. We have to adopt the battle mindset of formation. Most Christians in America have lived relatively, a relatively hate-free form of Christianity. That's why it's so surprising now, isn't it? <clears throat> and, it's, and it's just been the season that the church has been in, maybe a, a grace of the Lord, uh, or, or it could be that we've just been lulled to sleep in the race, frankly. And I truly believe that we are, as a church, on the brink of an amazing disruptive movement of God in this world. I think COVID exposed and it refined the church. And now, more than ever in the life of our church, we sense a hunger and a thirst for Jesus. That's why you're here this morning. You're hungering and you're thirsting for Jesus. We're not checking a box anymore. COVID gave us the exit strategy, right? If you were checking a box, you're not showing up anymore. And that refined us, it purified us. And so I know that when you show up here on Sunday mornings or you show up in the life of other believers throughout the week in the church that you want to be transformed by Jesus. And what I want to tell you this morning is what that is going to feel like. In, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures, last week we looked at John 15. John 15 talks about abiding in Jesus. It's this beautiful kind of connected imagery of what it's like for us to follow Jesus. Now, the problem with John 15 is we only preach the first half of John 15. The first half of John 15 talks all about that abiding life. The second half of John 15 talks all about persecution. Okay, so why do we only preach the first half? Because it's easier to hear abide than it is you're gonna be persecuted and hated. Jesus has always had the two together, though. In fact, he spends what, like, I don't know, 15 or 16 verses, 17 verses talking about abiding, and then he spends the, the next 14 verses talking about how we're going to be hated. So let's spend just a few minutes right here as we land the plane talking about this so that we can be encouraged when it happens, all right? Listen to what Jesus says. He says this. Right after he says, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit, it's going to be great. This is what he says next. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, 
the world would love you as its own. (laughs) But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. But when the helper comes, verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth whom proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. 16.1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, to keep you from exiting stage right when COVID hit. I've said all these things to you so that you wouldn't lose heart. You'd stay engaged. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour, he, Jesus could see the images of what was going to happen to these 12 men who were all going to be, all except one of them, killed for their faith. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. Who do you think he was talking about then? Paul. He had Paul in mind right there. Paul was doing a service to God when he was on the road to Damascus, right? And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Most of us do not typically connect abiding with this. Jesus always has. It's time for us to connect the two, friends. It's time for us to see that the world is a hostile place because the gospel is so disruptive. And so when we live our lives in such a way where we feel no disruption from the world around us, it should alarm us, shouldn't it? It should alarm us. It should make us wonder if we're really connected to the true vine. Because Jesus promised, he didn't say, he didn't say if it's gonna happen. He said when it's gonna happen. He said get ready so that you will not fall away because the gospel is so disruptive. And so if the gospel isn't disruptive in our lives, we're probably not experiencing hostility. If it is disruptive, if it is uprooting us and our sinfulness and absolutely transforming us, it's gonna be disruptive in the world too. It just comes with the territory. And this is what our kids need to hear and learn and know and believe more than anything else. This is how you don't get surprised and caught off guard by the enemy when you go away to college and you don't have a battle-born faith. So this passage changes our frame of reference for what we're to expect. Just two quick things right here. The world, which means the people and the systems of this world, will hate you. It's not they might hate you, they will hate you if you're following Jesus. They will revile you at first, then they'll try to tear you to shreds because the gospel is first disruptive before it's transformative, right? You've got to push the clutch before you can go to the next gear. Just what happens in our lives when we're confronted in our sin, it hurts, it's, it's disruptive, and it's offensive, and transformation cannot occur without us. It's, we've spent too long trying to syncretize the Christian faith to make it less painful. You don't get the real thing. You don't end up getting the real thing when you try that. So are you surprised at the disruption of proclaiming Jesus with your words in life when it comes about? What if that was the normative feeling for the church like it was for Jesus? What if that was our story? Jesus came to heal, restore, and make us new through the great conflict of this world, which is our conflict first with the Father. Jesus came to make all things new through this disruptive force of his his, uh, cross and his resurrection for us. That's where the healing begins. It doesn't come by 
putting every kind of possible belief into a certain box. The second thing I want you to know is this, is not, that the, not only that the world's going to hate you, but the Spirit will help you. The Spirit will help you. God has sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of believers to bear witness, to constantly remind us, to whisper in our ear in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that hostility, that it's true. You can know the gospel's true because you're experiencing this. And that's what we need to be reminded of. The Lord knew that is what we need more than anything else, is for the Spirit to comfort us when the conflict arises, to bear witness to our hearts that we might bear witness to one another. That this hatred will not define you. This hatred will not destroy you. This hatred is the cost of a perfect man saving worldly sinners. It's just what it is because because grace, friends, is disruptive before it's transformative. So I'm gonna pray for us now. And I'm gonna pray um, that God's grace would disrupt our hearts this morning in a way that will lead to deep and abiding transformation. So let's pray together. Father, there is a war being waged around us. And Lord, we want to fight the right battle. Lord, we confess this morning that we have spent maybe much of our lives fighting the wrong battle, even as believers. And Father, we confess that there's work to be done in the church and in the next generation, but it starts in our own hearts. And so, Lord, would we experience this morning the kindness of disrupting grace in our hearts? So, Father, as we confess our sins to you this morning, this table confronts us. It reminds us that there is much work to do in our hearts and in your kingdom. And, Father, that is not a problem for you. So, Father, would you give us a spirit of, um, of power, of love, and self-control in the place of fear this morning? Would you deepen us? Father, would you help us build one another up instead of destroying one another? Would you help us to take every thought captive and make it obey Christ so that we can have more Jesus? We pray that in his name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.